This has got to be one of my favorite parts, watching each and every one of you greet each other. Good morning, family. It's wonderful to see each and every one of you. If you would, go ahead and start making your way back to your seats. As you do, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, because that's where we're going to be at this morning. Of course, before we get started, we need to go in prayer. I need to go in prayer because we need the Lord with us. We need his Holy Spirit to guide us this morning. So if you would, bow your heads and let me lead us in prayer so that the Holy Spirit can do what he does best. That he can help us to receive his message this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you, God, for your love, for your grace, for your mercy. Lord, thank you that we can be here as brothers and sisters in Christ to see what you have in store for us this day. And God, we pray, would you send your Holy Spirit? Would you just open our hearts, our minds, our ears, our eyes? Would you help us to receive your word this morning? We need it so desperately, Lord. We need to cling to you. And Lord, we need you to help us. Help us to change our hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. Help us to cling to every word that you have because this is a difficult message. It's a, it's a heartbreaking message. But through it, there's such grace and such mercy, and I pray that you would help us to see that this morning. So God, help us. Be with us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. All right, well, as we begin this morning, we quickly need to be reminded of what we have learned in Genesis thus far. And that is, starting in Genesis 1, we learned about how God created everything, right? And it was good. It was wonderful. He declared it to be so. We further learned that at the pinnacle of God's creation, God created man and woman in the image of God. He further blessed them and charged them to have dominion over creation underneath God. Then we get to chapter 2 and things start to zoom in, okay? And we see that it zooms in on God's creation, his pinnacle creation of man and woman. We got to see the beauty of the relationship that God had established for man and woman and how they should become one flesh, how they should be united together. And further, how God had given them every plant and tree to eat from the garden. In fact, there was only one that he asked them not to eat from, and that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then, over the last two weeks, we saw how Adam and Eve rebelled against God. We saw how they chose to seek autonomy for themselves instead, and how they sadly believed that they could do better than God. And as a result, we saw the fall of mankind. We saw how the man and the woman now feel the shame and this nakedness, something that was never there before, that was never intended. We saw that the man and woman's personal relationship with each other and with God was shattered, it was broken. And now all of creation has been turned upside down. As sin and death, they enter into creation, making mankind totally depraved. But, but, in an act of pure love and mercy, God puts curses into place and he sets creation back into order. And he cast Adam and Eve out of the garden to protect them from doing further damage. God even promises Adam and Eve that one day he will send a savior from the woman's offspring that will crush the serpent's head who had deceived them. And now, that brings us to Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. So without any further delay, let's, let's see how things play out. So let's break open our Bibles, if you haven't already, to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to start reading the first five verses together. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, 
and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. So we pause now to kind of break down what we just read, these first five verses. We can reflect how right here, verse 1, we're now studying about the first birth in the Bible. In fact, we see how the Bible mentions that Adam and Eve, they knew each other, and further how Eve states that she has gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And think about how amazing that is, because up until this point, what did we see? God had created Adam and Eve, right? But we haven't seen a human birth before. So imagine Eve, she's now pregnant. She's having the world's very first child, whom she names Cain, and soon thereafter, a second child, whom they name Abel. Imagine how awe-inspiring that must have been. And yet, through this astonishment, Eve reflects back on the fact of how all this was only possible because of the Lord. And no doubt, she was also reflecting on the Lord's words to her that one day, the woman's offspring would defeat the serpent. So more than likely, at that moment, she thought these children could be it. These children could be the one that actually break the curse. Now, as parents, what's more natural than that, right? We have high aspirations for our kids. We want them to do better than us. We want to see them excel beyond anything that we did. But here, here, that must have been raised tenfold. Because again, they're wondering, could they be the ones to break this curse put on humanity? But sadly, as we read on, we know that Cain would be the opposite of these hopes. Cain would go on to murder his brother Abel. And we start to see that things really take a turn in verses 3 to 4. Because after some time passes, these boys would soon bring an offering to God, in which God would accept the one offering, but the other he doesn't. Specifically, Cain, who's a worker of the ground, he brings an offering of fruit to the Lord, right? But it's rejected. Abel, being a keeper of the sheep, however, brings the firstborn of his flock, and that is accepted. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, why is that? Why was Abel's offering accepted here, but Cain's was not? And I think the only reasonable answer to this question is to see that the text clearly, it teaches us, God doesn't care for vegetarians, so you better be a meat eater. <laughs> okay, I'm, before I get any more trouble, before I get any more trouble, seriously, as we look at the text, why is the one offering accepted but not the other, though? I mean, it certainly seems on the surface like an offering of fruit looks a heck of a lot better than a bloody animal on a table, right? So, even more so, again, Remember, this is the first offering of humans to God, where they bring their first offering to God, rather, that we even see in the Bible. So there's been no guidelines that we've been made aware of yet as to why the one was more acceptable than the other. But even if we sat there and said, you know what, let's fast forward in the Bible, let's go to the sacrificial system, we find out that both were actually acceptable offerings. You could actually have an offering from the ground, and you could have an offering from the flock, and both would be acceptable. Because Leviticus chapter 2 tells us that the Lord did accept grain offerings. He just didn't accept it as an atonement for sin. But here in this text, there's nothing in here that says they offered it as an atonement for sin. So that shouldn't have been an issue. And beyond this, it really doesn't make sense for God to curse Adam, right? And to working the ground, it's going to be hard for him. 
And yet when Cain, his son, does work the ground, when he does get this offering to the Lord, the Lord rejects it. That's baffling. So again, it leaves us with that question. Why does he reject Cain's offering, but he doesn't? But he doesn't reject Abel's. He accepts it. And I think if you really look at verse 3 and verse 4, we get our answer. For you see, if we look closer, we see how Cain, he brought an offering in time, okay, with the fruits of the ground. But in verse 4, what do we see? We see that Abel does something completely different. He brings from the firstborn of his flock. And not only that, he brings to the Lord the most valuable parts of the firstborn. And now what's amazing about Abel offering his firstborn is that it really shows he's truly placing his faith and his trust into the Lord. And that's because Abel didn't wait to see if his flock was going to have more young. Think about that. If animals are livestock, there's no guarantee how many young they're going to have in a particular season, if at all. Abel doesn't wait. He gives his firstborn to the Lord, right? He trusted him. He trusted the Lord would bless him with more livestock. And again, even beyond that, he doesn't withhold. He gives the most precious portions, the fatty portions, as we see in the sacrificial system. That was the most prized portion of the livestock. But in contrast, we now understand that Cain, he didn't do that, did he? For Cain only brought forth the fruits of the ground in time, more than likely after he'd already gotten all of his crops. And this provides us our answers to why the Lord accepted Abel's offering, but not Cain's, because Abel's was actually made in faith. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4 tells us that by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable offering than Cain did. And in this same vein, this is where it gets a little bit rough for us because we need to pause and ask ourselves the following question. Does the worship that we offer to the Lord reflect that we are placing our faith and our trust wholly in Him? Or does the worship we offer the Lord speak of a half-heartedness? Does it show that our faith and our trust is put into something else? Perhaps let me word it this way. Do you or I bring forth the best of our worship to the Lord or do we bring forth worship only on our terms? And I'll be a scapegoat here. I'll be the one to tell you that. I'll be the first to admit, rather. I used to be huge on not being able to really worship the Lord unless I was feeling it. That is, unless the words hit me just right, or I was in a good mood, or better yet, unless I got to worship God in my preferred ways, with my preferred songs, my places of worship, then and only then could I worship the Lord. Or so I thought. You see, in time, God was gracious with me. He started revealing to me that though I thought I was worshiping him, my heart was actually far away from him. Because the truth was, I wasn't worshiping him at all. I was worshiping self-preferences. He revealed to me that as I was worshiping with the music I was, I was really worshiping the actual music and the musicians. I was worshiping the places of worship than what they were supposed to point me to, which was Jesus Christ. Whenever I listened to a sermon or, again, a worship song, I didn't get excited by the words, even if they pointed me to Jesus and how he had saved me. I should have been shouting. I didn't. I had more of a passive reaction. Instead, I got excited when someone said something funny. Or, you know what, or when they did a hard instrument feat. Or when they, they sang a really hard note. Man, that got my attention then. And you see, when God started to reveal this to me, he showed me how it was absolutely possible to offer him worship. It was absolutely possible to sing him worship songs and, and praise and do all those things, yet have your heart absolutely nowhere near him. 
Family, God showed me that if I were truly worshiping him, I wouldn't be focusing on how I wanted to worship God. Rather, I'd be focused on giving my whole heart to God with overwhelming gratitude and worshiping him in the way and manner in which he declares, not what I declare. So in this same light, we need to understand that worship isn't about what we want. It's about what God demands. And I want you to think about that. I I, I truly do. We have to give everything we have to the Lord. He declares it because in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, what's the greatest commandment? He tells us, is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Simply put, he demands worship for our good. And you know why? Because what do we do when we're not worshiping him? We're looking to the world. We're looking to creation to, to worship something else. So if you're taking notes, I think that's the first point we need to get from this text that Cain and Abel really teaches us, and that's God demands faithful and reverent worship. God demands faithful and reverent worship. Now, when we come to understand this point in this text, the story of Cain and Abel has a lot more to teach us. In fact, there's another massive truth that's coming up that I want us to focus on. It's going to show us the dangers of the human condition in sin. Because right in verse 5, we see a new emotion that has never been brought forth before. It's never happened in the Bible to this point in time. It's a little thing called anger. In fact, one of the questions we need to ask now is, where did anger come from? I mean, when we read the text, we really don't see a basis for it. Because while the Lord, he rejects Cain's offering, right? It never once says that he rejects Cain. It doesn't say that, only the offering. And moreover, the text never shows that Adam and Eve had anger, or at least that we know of, or that they taught it to Cain. And we know that God certainly didn't teach him. So where did he get anger from? And so as we move forward in our study, as we read our next set of verses, I want you to keep that in the back of your minds, because it's going to help unlock some things for us. So I'll go ahead, if you're not already, we're going to start reading verses 6 to 14. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. I think one of the coolest things we see right here, right out of the gate, is when we look at verse 6, look at how God lovingly deals with Cain. That is, he doesn't rebuke him, nor does he allow him to fester in his own thoughts. Rather, he intercedes for him, right? He questions Cain before a heinous act is even ever committed. And make no mistake, God isn't questioning him because he doesn't know. He doesn't know what's going on. Rather, it's because God is trying to get Cain to recognize that something unnatural is truly happening here. 
Forget, remember those questions we just posed, like where did Cain, where did he learn about anger? Where did he get it from? God is showing us the answer right now. And that through the consequences of Adam and Eve's sinful rebellion against him, Cain has inherited something unnatural. The sinful, deprived nature that was not originally in God's good creation. And yet, in revealing this to Cain, God again shows such mercy and grace. He doesn't abandon him. Rather, he encourages and reminds him in verse 7 that if he does well, that if he clings to God, he will be accepted. But if he gives in to this sinful state, if he gives in to this anger and this desire, it will consume him. And I think we, we absolutely have to pause. We have to see the seriousness and the warning, and we have to heed it of what God is saying here. Because God is telling us that sin is crouching. It's like this predator. It's like this lion. It, its desire is to conquer us, to destroy us. In fact, it's so well hidden that Cain didn't even notice the presence of sin in his own life. Rather, all he knew is he had this new weird feeling inside of him. It was building up and up, and it was starting to make him mad and jealous towards his own brother. And what started as something so small, something so unnoticeable, something that seemed so harmless, it actually turned out to be so deadly. For sin is that deadly virus that will always seek to manifest itself in more hideous, more atrocious ways. And perhaps the best way to to really demonstrate this is by giving an example. And I'll be honest, it may be a little bit extreme, but I hope it gets the point across. And that is, whenever we learn that somebody has committed a sin, let's just say you, you've learned that somebody has committed adultery. It's not like one day that person was perfectly fine, they had nothing in their lives that could cause them to do that, and then the next day they turned and decided, you know what, I'm going to wake up and cheat today. It doesn't work like that. Rather, over a period of time of letting lust occur and of looking at things that they shouldn't, entertaining things that they shouldn't, better yet, of letting sin fester, it eventually consumes that person and they commit adultery. Simply put, sin always, always starts small. It always seems harmless for the world's standards, but then it grows and it consumes you. It lets you think that you can contain it by reassuring yourself it was just a harmless thought, you know what, I can overcome this. And before you know it, it's mastered you. Now, if you think what I'm saying is a bit extreme, fair, but don't consider my words, consider Jesus's. I want you to look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews chapter 5 and 7, because Jesus declares that to even have anger into one's heart is to have already committed murder. Better yet, to have lust into one's heart is to what? Have already committed adultery. Brothers and sisters, sin is real, it is dangerous, and as God states here and throughout all the scriptures, we cannot afford to ignore it. Rather, our only hope of overcoming sin is by giving our lives to Christ and allowing God to master us, not sin, but God to master us through his Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to reveal and convict us of our hidden sins. And likewise, as brothers and sisters in Christ, I think it shows why it's so important that we're in biblical community with one another so that we can proclaim the gospel in one another's lives, so that we can help each other see our hidden sins and point each other to the only one who can handle it, Jesus. We have to cling to God. We have to cling to our Lord. And so if you're taking notes, I think that's the second major point that Cain and Abel really teaches us, is that sin, it will consume those who don't cling to the Lord. Again, if you're taking notes... Sin will consume those who do not cling to the Lord. 
Now, as we've already read in our story this morning, we see that Cain, unfortunately, becomes a casualty of sin. He doesn't cling to God. Rather, he turns from God. He gives in to his sinful desires. He murders his brother Abel in verse 8 in this cold-blooded fashion, and that makes Abel another victim of sin. And we see that sin has now taken root. It's rapidly growing and corrupting the human race as the one seed becomes a murderer and the other one a victim of the murder. So now the story, it turns to what God does, right? Because surely after such a crime, God is just going to destroy Cain. No questions asked, right? That's what we'd have done. But as we read in verse 9, God actually does the opposite of what you or I probably would have done or expected him to do. Instead, God questions Cain, asking him where his brother's at, where is Abel. And again, make no mistake, just as before, God doesn't ask this question because he doesn't know what's going on. Rather, he asks this question because he's giving Cain an opportunity to repent, to turn to him. Yet we see that Cain doesn't do that. He refuses to repent. And he does another first in the Bible, something else not yet seen at this point. He continues in his sin, and he flat out lies. For even Adam, when he was confronted, he begrudgingly eventually came forth, and he tried to blame the woman, tried to blame God. Cain doesn't come forth in any of that. He stays straight up in his lie. He acts as if when he lies to the creator of the universe, God isn't going to find out what happened. Everything's going to be perfectly fine. But in the midst of the lie, the Lord turns and calls Cain out in verse 10. He reminds Cain that he can't hide from this sin. As the blood of Abel, it cries out to him. And as a result, the Lord now curses Cain in verses 11 and 12, marking the first time the Lord has ever cursed a human. And he amplifies the curse originally given to Adam. Remember, Adam, he was driven out of the garden, right? And of course, now Adam struggles to work the ground. But with Cain, he can't even work the ground. It's no longer even going to yield its strength to him. And worse yet, Cain is going to be a wanderer and fugitive over all the earth because now he's cast out from the Lord's presence. And with this horrible curse and banishment in place, we know that Cain must surely see the error of his ways, that he's finally going to repent. Surely he's going to own up to what happens and decide, I need God now. But as verses 13 and 14 saw, and they showed us, no, Cain only responds that the punishment is more than he can bear. In other words, I feel really horrible about the fact I was caught and I got punished but I'm not really sorry for committing the sin. He doesn't repent. He shows no remorse. He's more worried about being found out by others and what they may do to him now that he's not going to be in the Lord's presence. Because obviously there's only a few humans on earth to this point, and anyone born hereafter would be sure to learn of what Cain had done. And upon hearing this concern, the question now turns to what is God going to do about it? Is he finally going to destroy Cain? Is he going to finally have enough of him, his stubbornness, the fact he won't repent? I mean, surely anyone at this point has got to be overcome with bewilderment and frustration towards Cain. They'd give up on him. I would have at this point. Let's see what God does. Let's finish our story. Let's read verses 15 and 26 together. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. 
When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujala, and Mahujala fathered Mashulah, and Mashulah fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. I realize we just read a lot here. Let's kind of soak it up a little bit, because as we finish studying this text, I think we have to just be in amazement and awe of what God just did. His response to Cain in verse 15. I mean, here Cain is. The man refuses to repent, and the only thing he's upset with is, I got caught and punished. He's more worried about whether someone will actually find him and harm him, rather than focusing on the horrible action he just committed. And yet, yet, in watching all this unfold, God does something truly remarkable. That is, he still serves justice on Cain. He still sends him away from his presence. Yet he has mercy on him. He assures him no one will harm him. In fact, he puts a mark on Cain, and he states that he will take vengeance sevenfold on anyone who tries to harm or kill him. And again, while we don't know what that mark really was, we do know what it did. It made the Lord a sort of protector over Cain, even when he was cast out of his presence. And that shows extreme mercy on God's part for watching over someone so unrepentant, so undeserving. Because as the story unfolded, what did we see? At no time did he ever come back. At no time did he ever repent. Rather, his heart continues to harden. And as a result, sin becomes more rampant. For we see that through Cain's eventual marriage and lineage, sin consumes more and more. In fact, we're introduced at the end of this chapter to one descendant of Cain's named Lamech. And he prides himself on being the world's first bigamist. He's a man married to two wives going directly against God's original plan, his will, of which he said one man and one woman shall unite together in marriage. But worse than that, Lamech doesn't just kill a person and try and hide it. He boasts about it. He threatens to take revenge on anyone who messes with him by 77-fold. He's taunting God. And sadly, while Cain succumbed to sin and he was unrepentant, fearing for his life, what do we see Lamech do? He's exulting in it. And again, I think it's important to note here that just like Cain, we don't see any of his descendants turn and repent to God. Rather, sin consumes them just as the Lord had previously warned. And as a result, this shows how mankind is unable to save themselves apart from God acting, apart from God interceding. Mankind is spreading further and further out of control in their sinful nature. Think about it. Adam and Eve start the rebellion first, right? They choose autonomy for themselves. They believe they can be God. They believe they can be better than him. But yet, who was it who justly set things back into order out of pure love and mercy? 
That was God. It was God who promised a seed from the woman that would one day defeat the serpent. And it was God who allowed Adam and Eve to conceive and have children. So, of course, turning back to mankind, they've got it now, right? They see what God is doing. They say, we're going to take the football from here and run with it. We're not going to screw it up this time. They're going to cling to him, right? Nope. Rather, the one son came, we killed the other son, Abel, and mankind falls into sin again. And guess what? Now there's no seeds left to defeat the serpent. And yet, yet when all hope seems lost, God shows that not even the attempts of sinful man to thwart his salvation plan can come true. He won't allow it. For when we look to verse 25, we see that God allows Adam and Eve to conceive again. And this time they have a third son named Seth. And unlike Cain, who disqualifies himself and whose lineage turns away from God, Seth's lineage would do the exact opposite. They would begin to call upon the name of the Lord, as we saw in verse 26. And while Seth, make no mistake, he's not the promised one. His lineage eventually leads to the promised one, whose name is Jesus Christ. Jesus would be the one who could finally destroy the serpent. Jesus would be the one to destroy the curse. Jesus would restore the relationship between God and man. And in knowing this, we can reflect on this chapter and see how amazing it is that God reveals his character to us. For in this chapter alone, we see how God is just. He demands that, that faithful and reverent worship, right? He's just in that he answers the cry of Abel's blood. He punishes Cain. He sends him away. But likewise, we see how loving God is in both warning Cain and us of the dangers of sin. We see how loving he is that even after committing sin, he desires Cain to repent he protects him from further harm. And further yet, God shows his love through his faithfulness and ensuring his promise to bring a savior from the woman's seed happens no matter man's sinful attempts to destroy it. And so if you're taking notes, I think the final point we draw from this text is God is just and loving. God is so just and loving. And I think any time we study... We always have to end on application, right? Because all this, that's great. You can listen to me up here, but it means nothing if you don't apply what we've learned to your own lives. And so as we move to application, as we look to see how we take what we've learned and how we apply it to our lives, I think we have to look at a couple different things. You see, I want us to turn and focus back on why exactly did God allow Cain to live? Especially in seeing how sin consumed him. And especially in seeing how his descendants got further and further out of control? It's a fair question to ask. And you see, the reason I want you to consider that question is because it forces us to reflect back on God's character as well as our own. And it forces us to see what we should do as a result of that. It reminds us to reflect upon the fact that God is just in demanding faithful and reverent worship. It reminds us that he is just in answering the call of Abel's blood being spilt that was crying out to him by executing justice as well and sending Cain away. It reminds us again of God's love and care for the innocent because truthfully, his care and love for the innocent, it's only matched by his care and love for the sinner, such as Cain. And for just as we are told in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, God doesn't desire anyone to perish, but rather everyone to come to repentance to him. And when we take what we learned about God's character in this story, we start to learn more about ourselves in light of it, in light of who God is. Because the truth is, no matter how you slice this, when we reflect on this story, 
we see that more, we're more like Cain than we care to admit. For we are all sinners who have turned away from God in our own ways through anger, deceit, love, mercy, all those different things in there, or lust, envy. We know this is true because Romans chapter 3, verse 23 tells us what? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as a result of our rebellion against God and the sins that we've committed, the blood that we've spilt, we too have to answer to God one day like Cain because our injustices also cry out to God. And make no mistake, God will justly repay us for our sins. And as Romans chapter 6, verse 23 tells us, the wages of sin is death. And you see, in looking to answer our application question of why did God allow Cain, this unrepentant sinner, and his descendants to live, the reason I wanted us to focus in on that is because it forces us to ask the question about ourselves. Because when we ask that question about ourselves, we realize that for those of us who are saved, we too were once unrepentant sinners until God changed our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And for those of you who are unsaved, if God had already destroyed you, you wouldn't have the chance right here and right now to hear God calling you to repentance. Simply put, just as God was just and yet loving with Cain, so he is with us as well. And as such, we need to cling to his grace. For God the Father sent his Son, Jesus Christ, down on this earth to be the better able. For Jesus fulfilled the law in perfect righteousness in response to God that we could never do. And Jesus willingly went to the cross to shed his blood for us in being the better offering. And now the blood of Jesus, it loudly cries to God the Father, and it's no longer demanding justice, but rather it cries out that justice has been served. The blood of Jesus has satisfied the wrath of the Father for all of the sins of the world, past, present, and future. And the blood of Jesus is further imputed and transferred the righteousness of Christ to those who call upon his name in faith. And where characters in this story, like Lamech, they, they threaten vengeance 77-fold, Jesus offers forgiveness 70 times 7-fold. And so if you're taking notes, the main application, if you got nothing out of this, that I want you to get is you have to cling to Jesus because the truth is the blood of Abel, it cries for justice, but the blood of Jesus cries for grace. You have to cling to Jesus because, again, the blood of Abel cries for justice. But Jesus' blood, it cries for grace. Brothers and sisters, the story of Cain and Abel is a tragic one, no doubt. But it's not just because Abel was horrifically murdered. It's also a tragic one because Cain refused to repent, no matter how many chances the Lord gave him. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, I think you need to ask yourself, are you truly worshiping Lord Jesus and giving him all of your heart? Are you giving him all your mind, all your soul? Or are you prioritizing self-preferences and offering empty worship? Just as important, are you truly clinging to Jesus and his grace like we just talked about? Or are you, letting, or are you continuing to let him master you through the Holy Spirit to call out the dangerous sins around you, the ones that are hidden in you? Or are you still clinging to yourself and allowing sin to master you? Family, cling to Jesus. Cling to his righteousness by repenting and worshiping him. Worship him with all your hearts, minds, and souls. I dare you to be that person that when we're singing here and you see his words, when you see it put up on the screen, when you read it, to be shouting out for joy because you know what it means to you. 
It means everything to you. Be the one that shouts amen. I love Barrett. I love Matt. I love Angela. They've got wonderful voices. But don't look at their voices. Look what their voices are pointing you towards. Jesus. I'm going to shift gears here for just a second and talk to those of you who haven't placed your faith into Christ yet. And the question I'm going to humbly ask you, and the one I want you to wrestle with yourself is, why? And that may seem unloving at first, but it's the most loving thing I can ask you is, why haven't you placed your faith in Christ? For you too saw in our story today of how humanity in this new, deprived, sinful state, they can't save themselves. We cannot save ourselves. You saw how sin consumes us when we're not clinging to God. And if you want more proof, look at the world around you. Look at its craziness. Look how it's gotten out of control. But as you reflect on that, I also want you to reflect on our text today and seeing how we have an amazing, a loving God, a God who is personal, a God who is so faithful, a God who, despite our rebellion against him, continued to bring forth his plan to save us by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. So I invite you this morning that if you haven't asked Jesus into your life and placed your faith in him as your Savior, pray with me this morning that the Holy Spirit would open your heart and change it from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, that you would accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. Ask God to convict you of your sins and to help you see your need for Christ. And afterwards... Remember, you're not alone in this. Come find me after service. Come find Neil. Come find the elders. These many brothers and sisters who would love to come alongside you. That's the greatest thing in our life. So let us share it with you. Let us share Jesus with you. And so there's no better way to end this sermon than let's go to our Lord and Savior. Let's pray boldly. Let's go in prayer thanking him for what he did and carrying out his salvation plan and sending his son Jesus for us. And let's pray that this very day the Lord would add to his number those that belong to him. Heavenly Father, thank you. God, thank you for this message. Lord, it is so hard to see what happened. It's so hard to comprehend that we are Cain in this story. But God, what beauty, what grace you've shown. And that despite what we have done, despite what Cain had done, you continued to bring forth your salvation plan to save us through Jesus Christ. God, help us to cling to you because we can't do this on our own. We need you. We need your Holy Spirit every day. Lord, fill us with the things of Jesus. Help us to look to him, to cling to him. And God, for those who don't know his name, Lord, I pray you would open their hearts this day. God, I pray that you would reach out to them, that you would help them, that you would help them see and convict them of their sins to show them that they can't do this. They need Jesus. Help them to see how loving, how personal, how amazing Christ is and what you have done on the cross. God, please open their hearts. Help us to come alongside them. Lord, add to your number this day those who belong to you. Lord, continue to grow your kingdom as only you can do. God, we love you. We praise you. And it's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen.